So this is James chapter 3, verse 14. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Let's, uh, let's pray for Nick as he comes up. For those of you who don't know Nick, uh, Nick is really really kind of a, almost a patriarch of Riverside, I would say. <laughs> uh, Nick was uh, really, uh, right back in the day, was with one of the founding team of this church, and he, we're, we're really pleased that he could be with us uh, this morning. Uh, so Nick, do you want to come up and we'll pray for you as you come to speak with us? Father, thank you for Nick. Thank you for his service through the years uh, for this church and for people, uh, not just uh, within this church, but across this country and internationally as well. Lord, we're really uh, glad that he, you've brought him to, to speak with us this morning, Father. And I pray that you would give him uh, such insight into what is on your heart for us today, Lord. Well, thank you uh, for the words you've given him. And we pray that you would speak to us and challenge us this morning. Amen. That's um, John's nice way of saying he's old. <laughs> One of the older people in the church. It's really great to be here. Um, it's nice to have the excuse to come over here, actually. Um, there's quite a few people, I think, where we are in Queensbridge. It's very exciting to be there, of course, but that, who would like to come over and just to share with you. And I know many of you have become part of the Riverside family um, since this congregation began. And uh, hopefully there's going to be loads more. It's lovely when someone comes up to us and thinks we're new. Uh, that's, I feel we're doing a good job then because we really want to reach as many people as we can with this um, good news. Let me read to you a, um, some, some of you may have heard before, but it's well worth repeating. <clears throat> An American investment banker was at the pier of a small coastal Mexican village when a small boat with just one fisherman docked. Inside the small boat were several large yellowfin tuna. The American banker complimented the Mexican fisherman on the quality of his fish and asked how long it took to catch them. The Mexican replied, only a little while. The American then asked why he didn't stay out longer and catch more fish. The Mexican said he had enough to support his family's immediate needs. So the American asked, but um, what do you do with the rest of your time? The fisherman said, I sleep late, fish a little, play with my children, take a siesta with my wife Maria, stroll into the village each evening where I sip wine and play guitar with my friends. I have a full and busy life. The American scoffed, I'm a Harvard MBA and I could help you. You should spend more time fishing and with the proceeds you could buy a bigger boat. With the proceeds from the bigger boat, you could buy several boats. Eventually you'd have a fleet of fishing boats. Instead of selling your catch to a middleman, you could sell directly to the processor, eventually open your own cannery. You'd control the product, processing and distribution. You would need to leave this small coastal fishing village and move to Mexico City, then to Los Angeles and eventually to New York, where you can run your expanding enterprise. The Mexican fisherman asked, but how long will this take? The American said, 15 to 20 years. Well, what shall I do then? He said, ah, said the American, that's the best part. When the time is right, you could announce an IPO and sell your company and stock uh, to the public and become very rich. I would estimate you'd make millions. Millions, he said. What then? Oh, the American said. 
then you could retire. You could move to a small coastal fishing village where you could sleep late, fish a little, play with your kids, take a siesta with your wife, stroll to the village in the evenings, where you could sip wine with your friends and play guitar into the evening. Uh, I think that speaks to, to quite a lot of us. The, the subject for today, uh, because we're looking at Mondays, how to, how to live out Mondays in your work life or whatever it is you do that, to occupy Mondays and Tuesdays, how it means really to be a Christian in that context. I know some of you may not call yourselves Christians yet, but those of us that do, trying to work out how to be a Christian on those days. And the subject today in the series is, is healthy ambition. Let me ask you a question. How many of you will consider yourselves ambitious? Would you like to put your hand up? You reckon you're ambitious? Yeah, about four or five. Okay. Um, let's look at a couple of de- dictionary definitions of ambition, which um, they're, they're actually um, both valid, but, but actually quite different in what they're saying. Here's the first one. A, uh, uh, ambition is a strong desire to do or achieve something. A strong desire to do or achieve something. How many people have ever had a strong desire to do or achieve something? Oh, a lot more ambitious people suddenly in the room. <laughs> because when I said it the first time, you thought to yourself, that's a bit of a negative thing. He's asking us to admit to something which we're not very proud of. But when you put it like that, then surely most of us have a strong desire to do something. What gets us out of bed in the morning? Why do we do what we do? Because we have a strong desire to do and achieve something. That's part of the human life. That's why things get done in the world, because people have that sort of a desire within them. And uh, we only have to read the Bible, actually, to find, I mean, the Bible's full of all sorts of characters, but you'll find quite a lot of them have a strong desire to achieve something. Abraham had a strong desire to, uh, to get into the land of Canaan. Moses had another strong desire to bring the people back into the promised land. Joshua had a strong desire to get people in and to to overcome the the enemies within that land. Uh, Nehemiah had a strong desire to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus had a strong desire to fulfill his calling, which was to go to the cross to die for us. Paul had a very strong desire to plant churches, to evangelize people, and to help people to grow in their faith. All these people had strong desires, but the strong desire was not primarily for themselves, it was to fulfill a calling they felt on their lives. So something very creative and positive about that. Now here's another definition. An earnest desire for some type of achievement, or distinction, or power, or fame, or wealth, and the willingness to strive for its attainment. Now, something quite different there. Now suddenly, the object of what we're doing is not the event itself, but what it will give to us. Fame, money, prestige, promotion, notoriety. That becomes the goal, and the rest of it is purely a means to achieve that. So there's a drivenness beyond what you're doing for something more. Interesting, in a survey not very long ago amongst young people who wanted to go into drama and music as careers, when they were interviewed, the majority, when asked the question, why do you want to pursue this, the majority said, because I want to become famous. What an extraordinary goal in life. I want to be famous. So the music and the drama purely are a means to an end, and I will achieve that end by any possible means that I can. And uh, so there's a lot of personal gain in this. That's what that's about. It's about my own personal position and prestige, my own glory, my own wealth, whatever it might happen to be. And in this passage that James, who was writing to the early Christians, this is an alarming passage. If you've never read it before, I imagine it made you sit up and think. 
Because in this passage, Paul talks, uh, James talks about a, a cocktail, uh, um, a dangerous cocktail of two things coming together, selfish ambition and envy. When you put those together, he said we have an alarming thing happens. The word he uses here is erethea, which actually meant in those days originally being paid for your work. Then it became pay meaning actually working primarily for pay and for financial gain. But what James is saying here is this very interesting. He's saying if you've got selfish ambition in your life and envy, then you will find that your wisdom, in fact a better word would be for us to understand it, would be the word judgment. Your judgment is impaired. And what he's saying here is that your judgment becomes at best impaired but at worst evil. That's an extraordinary thing and it's obvious, isn't it? If you're making decisions at work or in your life or for your family and all the time you're thinking not what is best for the company or the group of people around me but what is best for me, your judgments will always be impaired. In fact, they will become evil because they will distort what you should be doing only because you're trying to promote your own ends. Can you imagine a scenario, I don't know if you can do this, imagine a scenario where uh, uh, the, a senior politician is making decisions of national importance, but at the back of his or her mind, they're thinking, how will this help me in my promotion, in my position, in my name being promoted? Can you even imagine that happening? I wonder. Can you imagine a man who runs a company or a woman making decisions for that company on the basis of how it will help him to get richer and to become better known? Can you imagine a teacher or a head teacher in a school who is saying to everybody, I want children to grow up and reach their full potential, but really what he wants is to be top of the league tables and he wants the school to be known above all the other schools and he wants him to be known as the head teacher of that school. If that's his motivation, everything will become distorted in the decisions that he makes or she makes. Can you imagine that being of your boss or your place of work where people are behaving that way? Interesting enough, I was talking to a guy this week who's in, in a, a big multinational company and uh, he was asking me what I was speaking on on Sunday. I said, ambition. He said, oh my word, that's important. And he said, I think about 80% of my time is trying to deal with the egos of the people that I work with who are all struggling for their own ends. No wonder we can't get this company to work. Can you imagine a religious leader even who at the back of their mind is thinking, how do I become better known? How can I become more successful? Anybody making major decisions in any given situation, if they are thinking about themselves, therefore their decision making, their judgments are always being tainted. And in fact, he goes on to say, what you will end up with is disorder and every evil practice. Is it any wonder that the world we live in is like this? In fact, this particular person said to me, can you imagine, he said, I imagine sometimes if in our company, in our place of work, everybody was aiming for the same thing, which was not themselves, how much more we could achieve? Can you imagine that? Do you know people like that? Have you been in a situation like that? Can you even imagine in your, where you work or in your, your world there are people like that operating? I think you can. In fact, you're naming them already now, aren't you? They're in your thoughts. You know who I'm talking about. Let me ask you another question. Has it dawned on you that you might be that person? Because I want to tell you this, that it's in every one of us. All of us who have a desire to achieve something, at the back of our minds, there's something in us, because of the way that things have worked out in human life, there's something in us that is looking for ourselves. And to deny that, Paul, uh, James says, that's the problem. Don't deny it. That's what he says here in this passage. Do not deny it. 
own up to it. Now, if you own up to it and acknowledge it, you can deal with it. But if you deny it, then you'll find it starts operating in your life. So let's face it, it's in all of us, to one degree or another. Some people far more, some people far less. But it's there, so we need to learn to manage it and deal with it, or we will be caught up in a process that will end up in all sorts of distorted and disorder. But it's all about Mondays. This is incredibly important because all of us are operating in those situations at work and during our lives where there is selfish ambition at work. You probably know this quote, anything can be achieved if you don't mind who gets the glory. Isn't that true? But we do mind. That's the problem. We mind. I think it was um, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan who had that actually on his desk through his presidency. I don't know whether he achieved it or not. But how can you tell whether the ambition in your heart is healthy or harmful? How can you tell whether it's good or whether it's selfish? How do you know? One way we know is because what we feel inside when these processes are going on. Let me give you a list of things that are... um, Oh, and I've forgotten to put these up. Here we are. Uh, let me give you a list of things that will become apparent in your life, some of these anyway, if selfish ambition is at work. Number one, you'll find a restlessness. I'm never quite satisfied. Always, today is not good enough. I've always got to be thinking about what might be in the future. You're never satisfied, never really at peace with yourself. Have you noticed that? You become discouraged by lack of recognition. After all, recognition is what you want. So somebody does not give you the credit for something, you are very, very upset. There's competitiveness and comparison. You're always comparing yourself with other people. You use people as a stepping stone to get to where you want to be. Oh, you do it nicely, of course, but they're pushed on one side. You find people who, in your life, many people at work, you get angry with them because they're in your way. When we behave like that, it's because we are primarily goal-orientated people and not journey people. We don't enjoy the journey or the process of life because we've always got to get somewhere, which is where at the top that I want to be. We become oversensitive to criticism. We define identity as achievement. So we label people by what they've done in life rather than who they are. And then lastly, we discover that we are over-impressed with celebrity and fame. People who are famous and who are celebrities or who are wealthy, we become impressed with them because in our hearts, that's what we want anyway, ourselves. And at the end of the day, it's all about me. We don't like to say that, but it's all about me. And that becomes utterly destructive. Where does that come from? Why do we behave like that? Let me suggest three things. For some of us, and this will be particularly true of men, I only understand men because I'm a man. And uh, for many of us, we have an unhealed woundedness in our lives. Uh, Out of a deprivation, we have become dysfunctional. And the two things that affect us very deeply, particularly men, is a sense of abuse, either abuse in our childhood. Words that are said to us, you'll never be any good, you'll never achieve anything. Look at you, how do you ever expect to do anything? And something in a child, when they hear that, responds by saying, I'll prove you wrong. So a drivenness comes into our life to prove somebody wrong who may not even be alive today. For some of us, it's the opposite of that. It's actually an absence of affirmation. I was brought up with with a father who loved me dearly, I think. Apparently, I I think he did. I don't remember him ever saying that to me, but he certainly never said, well done. Never said, I'm proud of you. Never said, you've done a great job. So something in the little boy says, Dad, I've got to prove to you how great I am. And so you find, and I found this, because I know all about this in my own life, I found this selfish ambition very strongly at times has come from a woundedness as a child. Still trying to work it out. 
The second reason, and that means, by the way, we need some healing in our lives. The second reason is unsurrendered self. You know, when we become Christians, those of us that are Christians, what happens is we come to Christ and we receive forgiveness and we assume that that's what it's all about. It's all about forgiveness. Well, it is about forgiveness, but it's not all about forgiveness. It's about the end of our lives. That's why baptism is such an important part of the Christian beginnings. Baptism is not just about getting in water and everybody saying, well done. It's actually saying to people, I have died. My selfish ambitions have died today. Now I'm living for God. That's what it's saying. It's an unsurrendered self that says, I'm, I'm forgiven, but I'm still gonna live for myself. And that will get us into, into problems. And the third area is actually, for many of us, a lack of trust in the goodness of God. We don't really believe, if we allow God to take control of our life, that he'll get us to where he wants us to be. We, th- we have sort of an assumption that God will actually press us down rather than lift us up. We're not really sure whether he has our best. Can he really get us to a, pro- a promotion? Can he really get us to a position in life? Can he really help us to win, to do well? Do we really trust him that if he wants to, he can get us wherever he wants us to be? Interesting, C.S. Lewis made this, these comments. He said this, from the age of 16 onwards, I had one single ambition to succeed as a writer, from which I never wavered, in the prosecution of which I spent every ounce I could, and on which I really and deliberately staked my whole contentment, and I recognize myself as being unmistakably failing in it. The side of me which longs not to write, because nothing wrong with that, for no one can stop us doing that, but to be approved as a writer is not the side of us that's really worth very much. And depend upon it, unless God has abandoned us, he will find a means to cauterize that, su- that somehow or other. He said, I would have given almost anything. I shudder to think what I would have given if I'd been allowed to be a successful writer. I'm writing as I do simply and solely because I think the only thing for you to do is absolutely to kill that part of you that wants success. And hey ho, C.S. Lewis becomes one of the most famous writers that ever walked our shore, lived in this country. But he had broken down at the age of 16, as it were, to realize that he had to let that, let that go. So where does healthy ambition come from? The good side. I think it comes from knowing you're loved as a child of God. That, that you found a place of peace. You're not having to achieve to give yourself some sense of identity. Your identity comes because you know that God loves you and he's your child. Secondly, I think it's because you have surrendered everything to God. You've given your life to him. Thirdly, because you trust him. There's a scripture in the Bible that says promotion comes from the Lord. You believe God can promote you or to get you where he wants you to be. And you, third or fourthly, you find, your own, you find God's call in your life. This is what I feel I'm made to do. And I want to do it to the best of my ability. And, and lastly, you make right decisions. There's a guy who used to be in uh, Riverside many years ago. He was a lawyer. He worked for one of the largest law firms in Birmingham. And uh, he was uh, offered the job as, as, a, um, as a partner in the firm. He was going to be the youngest partner ever recorded in that firm. He'd done very well. And they offered it to him and he turned it down. They said, how can you turn this down? This is what you've been working for all these years. Look at the salary you're going to have. Look at the money you could earn. He was looking out of one eye, of course, and seeing, seeing what was really going on with these people, working far too many hours, breakdown in marriage and everything else. He said, I don't want it. Why not? Because I've got enough money now. Thank you. You pay me very handsomely for what I do. Why would I want all the hassle of what you're offering me? They couldn't understand it. But he made a decision. No, nothing wrong with being a partner in a law firm. Don't misunderstand me. Don't anybody feel guilty about that if you are. It's a question of making your own decisions that says, this is as far as I want to go. This is what I want to do. These are my values in life. 
And that's the decisions that he actually made. Uh, watch this little bit of video. Can, can we play that? Or do we have the technology? Uh, you'll recognize this. this is Eric Little from the film Chariots of Fire. Um, that's a very famous line, of course, when I run, I feel his pleasure. The likelihood is he never actually said it. But Colin Wellen, who produced the film, who died recently, uh, examined his life, and he believed that that was the whole context of his life, that he worked out he, God was calling him to China and calling him to run, and he should do it to the best of his ability. And you know the story that when he was in the tw 1924 Paris Olympics, he was down to one, win the, uh, run the 100 meters, and uh, it was reckoned he would win that. And the heats were on the Sunday, and because he'd said to God that he would not run on a Sunday, he, he couldn't run. So he laid that aside, and you probably know the story. He decided then to enter the 400 meter uh, uh, race, which he'd never done before. And uh, he, as he went to the blocks, somebody handed him a bit of paper. It's ri written on it, he who honors me, I will honor. And you know the story, he was in the outside lane, so he couldn't see the other runners. So he ran the first 100 meters at the same speed as a normal 100 meters. Then he ran the second one the same, and the third, and the fourth, because he didn't know any better. And he broke the world record for the 400 meters, and of course got the gold medal. But there was a sense here, not that he, had, not, that he wanted to do what God had called him to do. That was what it was about. Uh, some of you will recognize this character here. Well, you should do. His name's called George Cadbury. And uh, uh, he's famous, of course, in this area. But, and he was known, and if you read his story, for being a highly ambitious man. But his ambition was not actually for himself. It was that he would produce good product. And his greatest ambition was that he would run a factory where the workers were cared for. And that's why you all have the benefit of living in this beautiful area if you live here, and still like that today. And it's the, it's the inheritance of a man whose ambition was for other people primarily. Uh, there are two, um, uh, there's a very well-known story uh, that some of you will know in the Old Testament of two particular characters, their father and son. Uh, one is David and the other is his son Absalom. Now David was a remarkable man because David was anointed king when he was a young man by Samuel. But at that point, Saul was on the throne. Now what you'd expect David to do is to come up and say, excuse me, I'm the king. I've been, I've been anointed king. I want my rights. But he didn't. He waited his time. He just waited until it was the time for him to become the king. His son Absalom, on the other hand, who purported to love his father but actually hated him, did everything he could, if you read the story, everything he could to undermine his father and turn people against his father so he could have the throne. He was an incredibly vain man. It, sa it says in here in the Bible that he weighed his own hair because he was so impressed with his beauty. And what do we find at the end of those stories, though? David ends up on the throne, the greatest king that they ever known. Absalom is hanging by his famous hair in a tree and is killed. His selfish ambition destroyed him David's willing to be humble took him to the top. And uh, we'll read a scripture just as we close in, in a moment, which underpins under, under that. Just to say this, that Paul uses another word for ambition in the New Testament three times, and each time this is how he describes it. He says, firstly, he says this in um, uh, the book of Corinthians, so we make it our ambition to please him. That's healthy ambition, isn't it? It's saying, actually, my life now is to please somebody apart from myself. I want to please God in everything I do, in my behavior, in my attitude. And not to be lazy, I want to actually work jolly hard because I want to please God and use the gifts he's given me. Secondly, uh, he, t he says this in Romans chapter 15. It has always been my ambition to preach Christ. Well, that's a great ambition. If you've become a Christian, you know how wonderful it is to be a Christian. The thing you must want to do more than anything else is to tell other people. 
My greatest ambition is to see many people come to Christ. Our ambition as a church, hopefully, is to see these chairs all filled with people who have found Jesus. Because that's what it's about. We want to tell people the amazingly good news. And in the book of Thessalonians, he says this. Uh, this is, I think you'll, you'll like this one. He says, um, let me see if I can find it here. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may be with respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. In other words, just get on with your life. Stop fighting and shoving and striving. Just get on with your life and be at peace. Let me finish by reading this passage from the book of Philippians and making a couple of comments. Uh, it's, a it's very striking. Paul wrote to the Philippian church and said this, do nothing out of a selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but look to the interests of other people. Your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And an extraordinary passage about saying, if you really want to know about healthy ambition, look at Jesus. What did Jesus do? Three things. Firstly, he did not grasp what he was entitled to. He didn't go for his rights. I'm entitled to that. I've got to get it because that's my entitlement. He let it go. He didn't fight for it. Secondly, he chose service over mastery. He would rather have been a servant than to have been a boss. And if you're a boss in your company, in your place of work, choose to be a servant boss so that you serve the people. Thirdly, he died to himself. He went to the cross. He chose to do that. And many times in our lives, we have to die to ourselves and say, I, I don't like that part of me. I'm going to leave that aside. I'm going to stop chasing that because it's not doing me any good. And here's a thing to notice that Jesus let God promote him. Interesting, the first picture I put up was of a ladder going upwards and a guy trying to get, there's nothing at the top. If you look at Jesus, what did he do? In this passage, he didn't go up the ladder, he went down it. He deliberately went down the stairs. And here's the fascinating thing. When Jesus got to the bottom of the stairs, he found that he was at the top. When he got to the bottom of the stairs, he found it was the top. Don't ever assume that if you follow God, you won't be rich or famous or, or, or known. But God will put you there because you didn't seek it, but he chose to give it to you. Because you went down, Jesus could take you up. He can put you wherever he wants. But your attitude of heart and mind needs to be, I'm not seeking those things. If God gives it to me, fine. But I'm seeking something better than that. So I'm going to lay it aside in humility. And then interesting, if you, it, the, the final thing to say is this. That if you have that attitude, we go back to the James passage and you discover this. What about your judgment? You'll be a very popular person at your place of work. Why? Because when you give a judgment, when you give your wisdom, because it's not tainted by selfishness, what will happen? It will, there will bring peace, mercy, good fruit and sincerity into your life and into the people you mix with. I'd employ you if I thought you were going to bring that into the company. And you'll bring it into whatever you do in life if you have the right, if we have the right attitude. 
These are not easy things because we're all struggling with this. But to see it is the beginning of change. Uh, and uh, for those of us not yet Christians here this morning, the beginning for you is, is where it was for all of us, is to start by giving our life to Christ and recognizing if we do that, then in fact our lives will be changed and we'll be, our lives will be very, very different uh, and no longer struggling, but actually at peace. I'm gonna play you a, a song now um, that is sung by a girl called Kristen Getty. Uh, it's just a lovely song, it's just a rough mix, it's not a terribly good recording. Uh, but the words are about, about our worth, because actually what we're all trying to do is to find our worth. And if we find our worth in God, we won't be seeking selfish ambition. And uh, we just listen to it through, and, uh, and as, we're, as we're listening to it, just think in your own mind, where is selfish ambition in my life? Where am I struggling for things that are not healthy? Where do I need to just let those things go and find a place of peace. Let's pray together, whether we're standing or seated, we just stand, as it were, before God uh, together in the light of what he wants to say into our hearts and our lives. And maybe some of us recognize, hopefully all of us recognize something of that selfishness in us. And seated on the cross, Jesus came and forgave us for all that we've done but also came to set us free from ourselves so that we can be different. And Father, we pray that each one of us here will be men and women, young and old, who have strong desire to serve and to please you, a strong desire to share something of our faith, a strong desire to love people, to serve people, to fulfill the calling and the gifts you've put into our lives, whether that takes us to the top or to the middle or to the bottom, wherever it takes us, that we will use the gifts you've given us fully in our lives. So at the end of our lives, you can say to us, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And we pray that our, our attitude, the same as that of Jesus, will have the impact in our place of work or wherever we spend our days that we will be salt and light in our world, living to a different set of values, to the beat of a different drum, that we will be able to bring something of the love of Christ through our lives into the places where we spend our days. In Jesus' name, amen.